I'm Khalil Ekelona, and this is Nashville. Have you ever seen Nashville, the film? What do you think of it? Robert Altman's sprawling satire follows 24 characters over the course of five days in Nashville, and it premiered here 47 years ago. Today, the all-star cast includes Lily Tomlin, Henry Gibson, and a young Jeff Goldblum. And Nashville still comes up in conversations about the great movies of all time. But ask Nashvillians who've seen it what they think, and you'll find some who love it and some who thinks it leaves a lot to be desired. Today, we'll talk about the film's legacy and dig into how it was made. But first, when you are renting an apartment or home, it's important to know that you have rights. But how do you go about discovering the, project, the protections granted to you when you sign your lease? WPLN's afternoon host, Mariana Bacayao, has some tips. Hey, Mariana. Hey, Khalil. So what inspired you to seek out tips for renters in our town? Well, I am a renter. and Me too. Uh, <laughs> yeah, then you know it's a hot market out here. And there's just a lot of things that since moving to Nashville, I didn't realize were specific to Nashville or specific to Tennessee, like the the day market rate. If, have you heard of this? Like no. if you're if you're renting an apartment, um, sometimes the price will fluctuate from day to day based on what the market is doing. And so, you know, when landlords are trying to uh, get potential tenants, they'll tell them, like, I can give you this price on this day. But, you know, if you wait a week, I can't tell you what will happen. Wow. That's kind of that's so unique. I didn't I haven't I didn't know that that was the case. So as you were kind of digging into this, what did you do next? What were some of the first steps you took? So I reached out to some legal aid attorneys, uh, both for this story, but also for another story that I last spoke to you about. Mm -hmm. um, legal Aid Society is doubling the amount of housing or tripling, sorry, the amount of housing attorneys they have from two to six. So I sat down with those two housing attorneys to sort of talk, uh, you know, what are the most common issues facing renters and what are the sort of common misconceptions that, you know, if renters had known from the beginning, they wouldn't have ended up in court. So in the story that you break down their advice into four basic tips. Okay. What is the first tip they gave you? They recommend reading your lease, which sounds simple, but I think renters, you know, I tend to look for late fees, how to pay rent, what happens if you need to break your lease. And sometimes the habit is to skip everything else. But there are some clauses in there that you might not be expecting. Like I learned in some leases, by signing your name, you're waiving your right to notice if your landlord moves to evict you. Hmm. That's interesting. Just by signing my name on the lease. I, okay, interesting. It's a, it's a hidden clause in there. Well, it's not It's not hidden if you read through the whole thing. <laughs> yeah, since, you know, they wouldn't give this advice if it wasn't a problem in reading the lease makes sense. Okay, so what's tip number two? So if you're going to negotiate your lease, they recommend getting it in writing. And you can negotiate your lease. That's perfectly legal if you're not entirely comfortable with everything that's in the lease. A lot of landlords use DocuSign uh my past couple of places have used DocuSign, which if you don't know, you can just go through and like click. It automatically adds your signature to everything. So it's very easy to sign, um, but kind of hard to have a dialogue. So what they recommend is printing out that lease, uh, making the changes you want to make, going back and forth with your property manager or your landlord, but making sure you also get their signature 
uh, so that if this if this is a case where you wind up in court, you know, you have it in writing. Okay, let's move on to tip number three. Um, so number three is keep paying your rent, even if the landlord isn't fixing everything that they're supposed to. Um, that's that makes a lot of sense. You know, I know. Let me ask you this. What about like providing things like heat and air conditioning? Are those protections baked into state law? Yes. If you live in a county with over 75,000 people, your landlord does have to provide heat under state law. They do not have to provide air conditioning, which in Mm. these trying times Mm -hmm. is really important for renters. Mm -hmm. I mean, okay. so going back to tip number three a little bit. What if something breaks and my landlord and property manager or property manager, they're not taking care of the issue on time? The recommendation is still pay your rent on time. Unfortunately, you, st- you still got to you still got to pay your rent. Um, but they do recommend taking pictures of that sort of thing. Uh, document that you are reaching out to your landlord with the problem. Document their response, uh, because if you if that is a case where you have to end up in court, that's a really strong defense. OK, tip number four. Um, tip number four. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I'm actually, I'm completely blanking because all of these tips sort of go into each other. You know, I, I kind of, in this story, you talk about how it's a documented paper trail, which you just alluded to. So in all the correspondence. Yes, the document everything. Okay, that's right. negotiation <laughs> and in everything that you're dealing with with your landlord or property manager, document the trail. Yes, okay. because if you do end up in court, that is going to save you. Okay. Now, you know, so how can renters who are looking for help, how can they find assistance from organizations like Legal Aid Society and others like it? Uh, depends on what type of assistance they're looking for. For legal representation, Legal Aid Society serves um, impoverished Nashvillians. Uh, they do have income requirements for their help, and they do have a lot of caseloads. Uh, but if they aren't able to help, they also sometimes uh, defer clients to volunteer law groups in the city. Those can also be a big help if you need legal representation. Aside from that, uh, part of the new grant that's coming to Legal Aid Society helps them with an outreach and educational program, educating both renters and landlords so that both parties know each other's rights. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's supposed to roll out sometime later this year. In your story, one of the housing attorneys said a lot of people moving here might be coming from states with more progressive renters' rights. But Tennessee is a whole different animal, right? Yeah, that goes back to... A lot of people moving from out of state, they assume that they don't have to pay their rent if something is broken, because in other states you can put it in um, escrow. So that rent, that rent money, you're paying it, but it's not going to the landlord until they can fix those things. In Tennessee, that money is still going to the landlord, even if they're not fixing things. Wow. That's interesting. I'm so glad to learn more about this. Help for all renters all throughout the state. That is WPLN's Mariana Bacchial giving us a rundown of how renters can protect themselves. You can find her story at WPLN.org. Thanks, Mariana. Thanks, Khalil. 
We have to take a short break. When we come back, we'll turn to Robert Altman's 1975 film, Nashville. Today is the 47th anniversary of its screening here in Music City. Have you seen Nashville? What do you think? Tweet us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. Lele Colonna, and this is Nashville. Now, after years in the making, Robert Alton brings the prince along the wind Nashville. The painted faces of a star-studded cast flip across the screen, and soon it fades to black. Right before your very eyes without commercial interruption. Fellow taxpayers and stockholders in America, on the first Tuesday in November, we have to make some vital decisions about our management. The camera pans out from a white garage door, donned with signs reading, Hal Philip Walker, replacement party, president. The voice you hear is Hal Philip Walker himself. It's coming from a megaphone on top of a white van that emerges from the garage, taking a left onto Broadway from 4th Avenue. It drives past Mars Furniture, First American National Bank, toward the Cumberland River. All of us are deeply involved with politics, whether we know it or not, and whether we like it or not. And number two, we can do something about it. When you pay more for an automobile than it cost Columbus to make his first voyage to America, that's politics. My mother's people came by ship and fought at Bunker Hill. The scene cuts to the dark interior of a recording studio, where we see country star Haven Hamilton in the vocal booth, tracking a new song live with a full band and an audience in the control room. Oh, we must be doing something right to last 200 years. That's how the film Nashville begins. Already in just those first few minutes, you see some of the themes already emerging. Politics, fame, the politics of fame, and music as a business. My first guest is a film critic who's written for the Los Angeles Times, The Dissolve, and The New York Times, among other outlets. He's also a Nashville native and former Nashville scene staff writer. Noel Murray, welcome to This is Nashville. Thank you so much. Glad to be here. Really happy to have you with us. So, you know, tell me, does that opening scene depict the Nashville you grew up in? It does. I moved to Nashville around 1978, actually, and lived here for about 10 years um, and then went to college and came back in the 90s, which is when I wrote for the Nashville scene. And so, you know, when the movie came out, I was about, I guess, four years old. Um, but even still, the Nashville of that era persisted well into the 70s and 80s. So for me, when I watch that opening, for example, it's it's exciting for me to see Lower Broad the way it was when I was a kid and it was still kind of seedy, if you know what I mean, versus mm -hmm. having like a riverfront park and a pedestrian bridge and a football stadium and pedal pubs and, you know, all that kind of stuff that I see when I come back to Nashville now. Um, and, you know, I think uh, even the little recording studio that you mentioned there, that opening sequence, um, that was also the Nashville of that time, those sort of antiseptic recording studios where people were cranking out um, songs that could be considered today, you know, more novelty songs than classic country. Now, 
I agree with you seeing like slight some of the seediness that lower Broadway had. I heard the stories about it, but in that first scene, that shot, we see an adult bookstore as that white van drives by. I want to know what are you, some of what were your impressions of the film when you saw it? Um, I saw it, I guess, when I was a teenager because I was a big film buff. And, you know, if you read a list of the greatest movies of the time, uh, Nashville always came up. And I already liked Robert Altman's uh, MASH and some of his other films. And so it was one that was definitely uh, on my radar. I think, you know, oddly enough, um, I didn't see it on a VHS tape or on cable. Um, I think I saw it on WZTV Channel 17, <laughs> mm. um, you know, in a version with uh, all, of the, all the swears uh, ble- you know, bleeped out and everything. Uh, but even at that, um, it's still, you know, the headiness of that film, the way it kind of pulls you along, even for like a 16-year-old kid when I was watching it, um, you know, and, and I think I think the fact that it spoke to the Nashville that I was living in at the time in, a, in its own kind of weird way, um, you know, it was it was extraordinarily impressive. I mean, you, the thing with Altman's films in general is that because everybody talks at the same time and because the camera is always moving around, you know, you really have to be an active participant as a viewer and you have to kind of follow along the threads you want to follow along. Um, and so, you know, there's so many characters and so much going on in that film that you can watch it one time and be impressed, but you still, you, you can watch it again and again and again and try and find new ways through it. You know, I saw the film on Saturday, thanks to our senior producer, Steve Harouche, and that's what I walked away with. Like, you know, see this film multiple times and there's gonna be more layers exposed to you because of the, the depth of the characters and Robert Altman's style. But something I wanted to ask, to talk to you about, you know, I've lived in places that were set for as the background for several popular television shows. You know, and I find that people get pretty sentimental when they see their home on screen. How did you feel seeing your hometown on the screen watching this movie? Yeah, um, you know, I think sometimes people fixate on the wrong things with those kind of movies. Like people watch the Blues Brothers, for example, and say, yeah, there's no way they could drive through this part of Chicago and then this part of Chicago in that particular length of time. Um, and and maybe that's true for Nashville as well. I mean, I've never really broken it down in terms of the logistics of where things are. Um, but, you know, for me to see Centennial Park um, and the Parthenon and to see the old what, it's not the it's the new old Opry House, I guess, you know, the, the Opry moved from the Ryman to the to the Opry House out by Opryland. Um, and to see that represented on film, to see uh, ads for Goo Goo Clusters, you know, to mm-hmm. see, the, like I mentioned, the recording studios, the lower broad. I mean, all of that stuff is like um, some of it's still there. Uh, some of it is gone. And, you know, even though I don't live in Nashville anymore, I do come back because I still have family there. And, it, you know, it, it does. It, it reminds me of the certain aspects of my of my childhood and the world that I lived in that I'm just happy to see preserved on film in some way. It's it's not New York, right? It's Mm -hmm. not Los Angeles, you know, it's Nashville. We got an email from a listener, Barbara Barnett Kay, who is excited to hear we'd be talking about Nashville today. She says, my late husband, Johnny Barnett, had a small part at the exit in. He was singing, my baby's cooking in another man's pan and introduced (laughs) Keith Carradine, who sang I'm Easy, which won the Academy Award that year. Let's listen to that intro and hear a bit of the song. Listen, uh, we got a special treat tonight. A friend of mine uh, was in town cutting an album. Tom Frank was in the audience tonight. and he's Tom, speak of the devil. 
He's agreed to come up and do a couple of numbers. Now let's make him feel at home now. Tom Fine. Come on. I never cared too much for games, and this one's driving me insane. You're not half as free to wander as you claim. But I'm easy. Yeah, I'm easy. Give the word I'll play your game. So that's how it ought to be. Because I'm easy. The music was a big part of the film, as it should be, but some folks had a bigger problem with the music in the film than they did the narrative. Why? Well, because um, they thought that the music was making fun of country music. Um, and, you know, the actors, uh, most of them who performed the songs actually wrote their own songs. Uh, and some of them were trained skilled musicians, uh, Keith Carradine. I mean, he wrote that song. It's a beautiful song. Uh, Ronnie Blakely, um, who plays sort of a Loretta Lynn type character named Barbara Jean. Um, her songs are terrific. They're like really good representations of, of classic country ballads and old home type songs. But, you know, um, Henry Gibson, who plays Haven Hamilton, we heard a snippet of that at the beginning, 200 years, a bicentennial song. Um, he was a comedian. You know, he came from the, the world of laughing and, and, and that whole scene. And so his, his songs seemed a little bit more like jokes. Um, so I think there was some concern that, that the people were making fun of the music. I have a quote here from, from Robert Christgo, the Village Voice critic, who at the time had not seen the movie, but he reviewed the soundtrack and he said, if the music makes the movie, as more than one film critic has surmised, then the movie is a lie. Another possibility, the critics are fibbing a little to cover their ignorance. Hmm. So what he was saying is that film critics didn't know or care about country music, and so they didn't mind that it was being made fun of. Now, you wrote that the music was funny in parts, um, but were there funny songs getting airplay at that time on radio in Nashville? Oh, sure. I mean, country music, like I mentioned before, was full of novelty songs in the mid-70s and, and, and on into the late 70s. You know, songs like It's Hard to Be Humble by Mac Davis or I'm Gonna Hire a Wino to Decorate Our Home by, you know, I think it was David Frizzell. Um, you know, the, and, and that split between the traditionalist uh, country music and the more corny, let's say, the more hee-haw kind of version of country music was, was something that, that Nashville was wrestling with at the time. Um, I mean, we had the whole outlaw country movement that, that emerged in the early to mid-70s with Willie Nelson and Waylon Jennings and Chris Christopherson, uh, who were trying to bring things back to more just, you know, acoustic instruments, guitars, uh, singing about life, more Hank Williams and, and less, you know, um, well, I don't want to name, name any names, but, <laughs> but you know, but but yeah, you know, more more classic, I would say. Your dad worked in country music, right? He did. Um, he was a disc jockey for a country music radio station in Kansas uh, for several years, um, and he also was a bass player and played in some different country bands. And um, he, you know, my great sort of claim to fame, you know, Nashville uh, legend once removed is that my dad actually played on a, a Chet Atkins uh, session in the, in the 60s. You know, so as I mentioned, I watched the film and it's not hard to notice there were only a few black actors. I admit it was nice to see the Fisk Jubilee singers, but one yeah. black character seems pretty clearly based on Charlie Pride, the famous country singer. He was there in the film, but not truly really fleshed out. What do you think of the film as a reflection of the racial balance of the city at that time? 
Yeah, this is a flaw in a lot of movies of this era and and really, you know, for the next 30, 40 years, you know, beyond, um, you know, the, the sense was that if you have um, a black character or even two major black characters like this film does, and not even major, two minor black characters, that you have you have done what you need to do for representation. Mm. Um, you know, I, I do appreciate that there is an acknowledgement, you know, that the two black characters, there is a... a um, they sort of, you know, there's there's Tommy Brown is the one character you mentioned is sort of Charlie Charlie Pride like played by Timothy Brown, um, and then you have Robert Zoppi plays a character named Wade who at one point you know shouts uh, something I won't repeat um, about Tommy Brown you know not really being uh, mm-hmm. you know, uh, truly black I guess, um, you know so obviously that's not if, if you're looking at the movie Nashville as a reflection of the city as a whole. Um, then that's not Nashville. I mean, Nashville has a much larger, more than two people, you know, that you would, you would see uh, on any given time uh, in the city. Um, that said, you know, um, I, I, I do think part of the way that Altman worked, um, uh, you know, was to kind of let actors find their space and do what they do. Um, and, you know, sometimes that meant that people didn't get in the film as much as they should because they weren't impressing him that day or because he had his own biases he was working through. So, yes, it's, a, it's, it's, it's not it's one of those things that stands out as being you know, kind of um, not as uh, reflective of the times as it should have been. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville and I'm your host, Khalil Colonna. We're talking this hour about Robert Altman's film Nashville which had its local premiere 47 years ago today. We've got some archival tape of a news broadcast after that premiere. Here's a clip of ABC's Don Farmer reporting. The Nashville premiere at a shopping center theater was littered with long dresses, limousines, and rhinestone Levi's. There were the stars of the movie posing with the local folks who had small roles in it. And there were the inevitably sequined Tennessee twirlers zooming around just as they did in the film. And off-screen, Nashville is major league in terms of money, talent, and hustle. Its skyscrapers and its reputations have been built on the backs of truck drivers and guitar pickers. This town enjoys being painted in red, white, and blue. But its country music bars more often flash in garish neon, and they vibrate with the true Nashville sound, the ring of the cash register. It is a magnet for all the would-be Loretta Lynns and Hank Snows. For them, Nashville reality is singing, and success is having someone listen. Most of them don't make it. I've been cheated, been mistreated. When will I be My next guest was there that night. Bill Myers, welcome to This is Nashville. Thank you. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. So, you know, uh, you know Don Farmer mentioned rhinestone Levi's. Did, were you sporting rhinestone Levi's during that time? No, uh, I was just uh, in my regular clothes. <laughs> nice, <laughs> nice. Okay, so earlier we played a bit from the very beginning of the movie, and it starts with a kind of mock commercial for the soundtrack. We see this painting that features the characters in the film, all 24 of them. Bill, you actually made that painting. Tell me, how did that come to be? Well, when I was uh, on the movie set, I was there with Harry Hahn, who um, was writing an article for the Los Angeles Times, and he wanted a drawing to go with it. So I took that opportunity to start the drawing, but I really wanted it 
to be uh, the movie poster and and to the, uh, for Altman to use it. So I did all 24 characters in equal size and laid them out in front of the Parthenon. Um, and uh, the last day of shooting, uh, my wife and I and daughter and son went to the Parthenon to show it to Bob Altman. And uh, we, came, we drove up, we got out. They played on uh, Jeff Goldblum's tricycle, which was the motorcycle. And Bob uh, and uh, uh, Bert Remsen walked by. And I said, Bert, I, I would like to show something to Bob. And uh, he said, what is it? And I pulled back the dust flap, and I had a 30 by 40 painting of all the characters. And uh, he said, that's wonderful. Let's take it over to Bob. He's about to leave. So we ran across hmm. in front of the Parthenon and got to the van and knocked on the door. And Bob opened the door, and he was sitting there with all his minions sitting around him. And uh, I said, uh, Bob, I've got something to show you. And I unfurled it again and held it up. And he said, you've captured my movie. That's wonderful. Come back to the motel and we'll talk. Mm. So he said, um, by the way, what's in this open space here, which is next to Michael uh, Murphy, Murray, Murphy, <laughs> Murray, and um, it was uh, a new roots for the nation, and I had a button, a campaign button, and I held it out and put it on top of the art. He said, that's perfect, that's perfect. Okay, let's do it. And yeah. uh, then I said, and one other thing, uh, this is when you talk too much, you know. I said, when, one other thing is there's an N in the painting, in the light section, there's an N. And he said, I don't want an N. <laughs> so, so I said, okay, I'll take it out. But I didn't really do anything to it. <laughs> that must have been pretty exciting. You know, since today is the anniversary of the premiere, you know, it'd be great for you to take us back to that opening night at Martin 100 Oaks. Yes, it was um, a lovely night, and all of the, of the stars were coming in, and they would park just, uh, you know, several yards away. And one of the cars, one of the limos had uh, uh, the um, uh, um, great... Um, What's her name? <laughs> She's Lily Tomlin? Lil no, no. It was uh, um, the comedian who... who Minnie did, Pearl. Minnie Pearl. Minnie Pearl was uh, there, and she said, would you two like to ride with us to the uh, opening? And I said, no, Minnie, thank you very much, but we'll just walk. So we <laughs> walked over and went in and... All of the stars were there uh, of the country music world. And a lot of the producers were there, too. 
And we sat down and my the film started and my uh, painting comes spinning up like an old album from uh, the uh, 70s. And they zoom in on each of the character when they introduce them. Mm-hmm. And then they uh, then the opening starts as you just broadcast. Um, and I noticed that the producers were laughing very much. They really enjoyed it, but the stars were not laughing. Hmm. And several of them got up and walked out. Minnie Pearl was was very gracious about the way she said it. You know, she she thought it was uh, nice to have Nashville in it and the singing she wouldn't talk about. Okay. You could tell she wasn't necessarily totally pleased. You know, I want to play another clip from that ABC report. Don Farmer interviewed folks after the premiere to get their reactions on the film. Let's listen. I love Nashville, and I love the country music business so very much that uh, I doubt if there would be a movie that anybody could make that would satisfy me. I really don't I think it says too much for Nashville. It is the way I picture Nashville. The guy must have had a nightmare before he came to Nashville and come down here and filmed his nightmare. I don't know. I didn't feel like they were, you know, poking at Nashville and cutting it down. I felt like it was the whole American public. They were bigger than Nashville. Yeah. Anyone that anyone that gets a, that has a negative reaction to the film tends to be tends to feel that it's an, an attack on on them, you know, and on their city. And it's not at all. It's 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 uh, it's a commentary on America. Quote, that guy must have had a nightmare before he came to Nashville and came down here and filled his nightmare. Wow. You know, was it clear while the film was rolling that some folks really didn't like it? Yes, but I think most people enjoyed it. Um, And while they were making it, uh, I was on the set almost every day, and I could see that the... um, costume department had clothes that were red, white, and blue. And I knew instantly that it was really more a movie about America. Mm-hmm. And um, that was um, the most important thing about it. And it became, uh, it was reviewed that way. Uh, Kurt Vonnegut and Pauline Kael both great uh gave it great reviews we got a tweet from dixie girl 256 she says at this is nashville my best friend from high school was in the choir during the recording session look for the tall black guy behind lily tomlin without a stole in his choir robe victor (laughs) always knew how to stand out in the crowd by the way i love the movie it's it's my nashville frozen in time so noel murray is still with us noel do you have a favorite scene from nashville um, that's a great question. Um, you know, we, we've been talking all this time about uh, Altman and his vision. We've been talking about, um, you know, the, the actors providing their own songs. Um, I want to, you know, it's be, I'd be remiss not to give a shout out to, I know, a guest who's coming on later, which is Joan Tewksbury, who um, is the screenwriter of the film, 
um, and actually was the one who came to Nashville and took all the notes and and did all the observations um, and then turned it into a screenplay that everybody else worked with, et cetera. Um, and, you know, I don't want to steal whatever she's going to say later, but one of my favorite scenes in the film is the scene where um, uh, Gwen Wells, who plays an aspiring singer, uh, Suline Gay, um, has been asked to um, perform at a political smoker for Hal Philip Walker, the replacement party independent candidate that we heard at the beginning of the film, at the beginning of your segment. Um, and she thinks she's going to be singing, but they want her to be stripping. Um, and there's sort of this delicate balance that goes on about, you know, her trying to see if she can still perform her music, but they want her to take her clothes off. And there's a great quote from, from Joan Tewksbury on the... Um, uh, the commentary track for the, the Blu-ray, the Criterion edition of Nashville, where she kind of puts herself in the, in the mind of, of Suleen Gay and says, I can fix this so I won't have to take off all my clothes. Mm -hmm. um, it, you know, and that to me is like a really wonderful observation and also kind of at the core of what the film is trying to say about the balance between celebrity and authenticity. Um, you know, it, it's everybody is trying to find some sort of a compromise. Um, and they're, instead they're being pulled along by the mob um, in, in a way that makes it hard for them to actually achieve what they wanted to achieve. So. That's That scene really struck out to me as well. That is film critic Noel Murray. Thank you. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Really appreciate it. After the break, we'll meet the screenwriter of the film and learn about her experience visiting Nashville for the first time. Tweet us your thoughts about the 1975 film at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. I'm Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. All great films begin with an amazing script. It takes a diligent and creative screenwriter to make a world on paper that a director can give vision to and that actors can use to breathe life into their characters. I'm honored to have the screenwriter of the 1975 film Nashville as my next guest. Joan Tewksbury, welcome to This is Nashville. Hi. Hi, it's really nice to hear you. Oh, so wonderful to be talking with you. Thank you again. Now. You know, tell me, how, how were you first presented with the idea to write the screenplay for this movie? Um, Bob had been offered, um, uh, Loretta Lynn was on the cover of uh, Time magazine, and everyone thought, well, this um, seems to be commercially uh, going on at this moment in time. And so Bob was given a script that he really didn't like. Um, and because Bob was a great uh, expander of worlds, um, it was decided that he would, you know, maybe this would be something he would be interested in. And he asked if I had um, ever been to Nashville. Did I was I a fan of country music? And I said neither, but um, I'm certainly game. So. I went to Nashville uh, exactly the way the film opens with an automobile accident. Hmm. Uh, and I was taken, 
I, I was introduced to some lovely people who took me to the museum and uh, where I saw Patsy Cline's hairpins and then all of the Bible industry. And there wasn't a great deal. I was taken to Ryman Auditorium, which I found to be, it had the best mojo in a room I've ever felt. Mm. And I went back and I said to Bob, I needed to go by myself. I needed just to walk around and, and get the texture of what was going on. And so I did. And that's when I wandered into the, um, I was given the address of the gospel music recording studio. And the engineers were fabulous because they said, you need to go to the exit in, you need to go to these three places. And so it was incredible because I was very much like Opal from the BBC because it was a kind, generous place at that moment in time and pretty innocent. So I could go in and I was friendly and nice and just observe. And the last night that I was there, um, I went to the exit in and there were three, as is shown in the film, there are about three different things going on at the same time. And when I walked outside, I said, this is the overlap. This is the nature of what this script has to be, because the place was so small at that time. If I saw you in the morning, I would probably see you at some other point in time mm. during that day. So that's how the structure of the um, the movie was formed. I come from the world of dance. And so it was like knowing Bob and having worked with him on two other films, I knew what the kind of choreography that would contain it, but still leave it wide open for him to include or exclude what needed to happen in terms of there were 24 stories you the you are the audience the 25th character um and noel mentioned it earlier that you are a you are a participant in this movie and that if you see the movie more than once you will find another world if you follow another character and yes as he said it was a metaphor for america at that time now, so therefore, <laughs> you wrote this script, 24 characters, all weaving in and out of each other's lives. They're all unique in their own way, but there's been a lot of speculation about who some of the characters are based on. Who, who, did, uh -huh. you, who did you draw inspiration from as you fleshed out these characters? Well, they were really based on people I knew. Um, the the Keith Carradine character was sort of a Jerry Jeff Walker, who I did not know, but had sort of followed his career a bit. The um, Wade character was based on uh, the fellow who came up to me at the exit in and told me he had just gotten out of prison for premeditated murder and had studied law and gotten himself out of jail. The Ronnie Blakely character was based on a, on a compilation of, uh, actually, I had worked with Mary Martin. And her husband was the driver in that relationship. So oddly enough, that character was sort of based on, yes, the country western singer women, 
but it was also based on what I knew from having worked with a star like Mary. Um, the uh, um, Lily Tomlin character was based on Louise Flesher, who had deaf parents. So we decided that it would be interesting for this woman who was a singer in this choir to, um, to have deaf children. I mean, you could go down the list, but actually they were not really based on, on the people there in Nashville. Mm -hmm. It was a deeper dive into the personalities of anybody in the world. And what's interesting, I have seen this movie in Israel, and I've seen it all, I've seen it all over the world. And everybody seems to be able to somehow relate to these characters because they're not just a pastiche of something. They're people, mm -hmm. you know. We got a tweet from at Clef Music at This Is Nashville. He says, thank you for having Mr. Myers as a guest. I have the poster hanging in our studio and have wondered so many things about it. What a wonderful guest. I studied film sound under Altman's re-recording mixer during the 70s. Between that and being a Nashville native, it's very special. Now, artist Bill Myers is still with us. He painted that portrait of the 24 characters you see at the start of the film. Bill, as you mentioned earlier, you spent a good amount of time on set. What were some of your impressions with the actors? I remember being in a, a motel room uh, with Ronnie Blakely, who I thought was really beautiful. And uh, I wanted to, I was also taking photographs. So I took photographs of all the characters or most of the characters. And I took several of her. She, she posed just uh, beautifully. And um, she sang, uh, she was writing a song that she sings in the last scene in front of the Parthenon about her mommy and her daddy. And um, I thought it was just a beautiful song. And um, when she sings it at the end, right before she gets shot, um, it, it's just amazing. And um, it, it reminds me that the movie really... Um, portrayed two things that actually happened in real life. One was the shooting of a star. It wasn't a singer, but it was uh, John Lennon. And the other was uh, the populist Southern president hmm. who turned out to be Jimmy Carter. Um, and those things were incidental, but it just proves, as John was saying, that these characters are real. Mm -hmm. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Khalil Ekelona. We're talking this hour with screenwriter Joan Tewksbury, who wrote the screenplay for Robert Altman's 1975 film, Nashville. You know, now, Joan, as, as someone who worked closely with Robert Altman, can you talk a little bit about his process of making Nashville and working from your script? Uh, basically, what what Bob always did was to take the script, but it was about the casting. So oddly enough, we had talked about who the actors might be before I went to Nashville the first time. He knew he would use Keith and he knew he would use Burt Remsen um, because we had all just worked together in Thieves Like Us. 
And he had um, Louise Fletcher in mind to play the, the role that Lily ended up playing. But we talked in a way about people that we knew as that could be possibilities for casting in the movie. And after the movie was, it, it was a go movie and we were going to do it. And the actors started coming on board. Having worked with him as much as I had, I knew that there would be openings for them to bring their own stories into their characters. So often what we would do is work with, I would work with various actors on days that they were going to be shooting to add or subtract certain things that would be, that would flesh out the characters more than just what was written on the page. And so for a lot of, um, for a lot of time, people, for a, for a long time, people said that actors had written their own scripts. Well, not really. Hmm. There was always this framework or this playpen where Bob knew the structure but it left everything open to make additions. And one of them being the visits on Sunday to the various churches, because the, the longer that we were there, no matter what happened on Saturday night, everybody showed up to go to their church of choice on, on uh, Sunday morning. Mm. So it was an absolute essential part of the fabric of the industry of um, of the music industry for one, but just being in Nashville period, um, it was very important. So as I say, there was always a playpen, there was a structure, but there was room, you know, for Bob and the characters to flesh things out even more. You know, speaking of an open process, Bill, you were actually, you actually appear in the movie, right? Yes, yes. I was in that strip scene. You were in the strip scene. Yes. Okay. Now, Joan, tell me, what was the first scene you wrote? The strip scene. Okay. I had, <laughs> yeah. I had worked in nightclubs, and I, I was a dancer. And the girls that were, if you were a dancer, you were, you know, called upon, wouldn't you like to do other things like go sit at the gambling table and, you know, uh, have people spend a little bit more money gambling because you were sort of cute. I was too sullen for that sort of thing. So I was not asked, but I observed one young woman who was convinced that she had a great voice and she didn't, and she had a great body but it, she was constantly being pressured by Playboy or, um, I th well, Playboy and Penthouse, I think, had just started to take off her clothes and get famous. And so what Noel talked about in terms of what, how far can you go with your ambition? How far will you go? And it's what's interesting now is that anything goes. In the years that we were shooting that film, there was still an element of shame or an element of uh, uh, proprietary about, you know, things you would do and wouldn't do. And poor Celine uh, decides that she wants to sing at the Parthenon. <laughs> so off come her clothes. And I must say that the men shooting that scene 
were absolutely spectacular. At the end, we shot all the music in the morning. And they came up to me at the lunch break and said, you are going to dub her voice, aren't you? And um, I said, no, no, we're not. And that's sort of the point of it, that she can't sing very well. And at the end of, I think we did two complete takes with two cameras on, on, her, on that scene. The men stood and gave her a standing ovation at the end of every single one of those. And Gwen was one of the most brave actresses um, I've, I've ever known. And she since passed away. But um, it was a true tribute to her bravery to do that, to act out that metaphor. Bill Myers is here nodding his head. He was there at the scene. He's nodding his head in agreement <laughs> with you. Now, 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 Joan, tell me, you know, I've got just about 45 seconds left. What is your most last memory of most lasting memory of writing and working on this film and of the city of Nashville itself? I think that the Parthenon scene at the very end of um, after she has been shot and when the motorcycle man comes in and the I cannot remember who sang this song, but the song is There's Trouble in the USA. And the way it was used in the film completely saturated this idea that we're all going along and skimming along in the surface about isn't, you know, aren't we great, but there is trouble in the USA. And in so many ways, it resonates the division now. And um, that and the absolute generosity of the people in Nashville, they were extraordinary. Joan, we lost her, but I want to thank Joan Tewksbury, who is a director, producer, and screenwriter. She wrote the screenplay for the Robert Altman film, Nashville. She was joined by artist Bill Myers. Thank you both for being with us today. We're going to go out today on closing music from the film, Nashville. We want to thank everyone who tuned in this hour. This is Nashville is a production of WPLN News and Nashville Public Radio. Listen back at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Our producers are Steve Harouche, Rose Gilbert, and Tasha A.F. Lemley. Our digital lead is Anna Gallegos-Cannon. Michaela Elias is our technical director. Our executive producer is Andrea Tutto. Shout out to our intern, Doreen Chernecki. The masterminds behind our theme music are Lorange and Namir Blade. Special thanks to Allison Inman, John, and Roz Lewis. The conversation doesn't end here. Tweet us at This Is Nashville and tell us what you want from our show by filling out our quick survey online. This is Nashville. I'm Khalil A. Colonna. We'll see you tomorrow, everybody. And be good to each other.